I didn't start out this way. In fact, part of what I was mulling over as I was standing outside Dr. Gregory's office was the thought he might be proud of me for turning out like this after such a short time in his program. This is Allie Daniels. You're listening to Antimony. Episode 3, Resin and Rock Dust. When classes started, I was nervous, but a little excited, too. Our classroom was in the museum building, so on my way, I checked out the exhibits. The man lay on his side in a fetal position. His arms were crossed over his chest, wrist over wrist, as if guarding himself too late from a shot to the sternum. Brown skin stretched taut over his cheekbones and brow line, and pulled his mahogany lips back to reveal a set of grinning bright white teeth. His eyes were shut, and thick dark lashes rested against the lower edge of his eye sockets. His hair was jet black, tinged with red. His body was wrapped from the waist down in beige linen bandages, and silver bracelets hung from both wrists. The label on the glass that encased him said, Mummified Man, Gerasene Region, modern-day Jerish, Jordan, circa 1st century CE. Extensive care was taken to apply makeup post-mortem to the man's eyes and cheeks. His skin also bears the residue of aromatic oil, perhaps myrrh, often used in burial rituals. Gift of Gabriel Gregori to the Harvard Archaeology Museum, 1865. Sure enough, A thin line of black eyeliner rimmed the man's closed eyes, and his eyelashes looked like they had a coat of mascara. A faint tint of azure blue adorned the man's eyelids, and his cheeks looked faintly rosy. On the Egyptian mummies I had seen, the image on the outer sarcophagi was often painted to show the use of eye makeup, but as far as I knew, the mummy itself was always just natural not made up. I inhaled and let the smell of the resin in which the man had been mummified fill my nostrils. It reminded me of car trips with my mom and dad in the summer, driving on just oiled roads before construction crews put down a layer of asphalt. The thought of my mom and dad made me tear up. I wiped my eyes with the back of my hand and glanced at the clock on the wall. Five minutes before I had to find my class, Ancient Artifacts. The class blurb said we would learn how to analyze ancient objects using scientific and unconventional technologies. 
Despite the fact that I wasn't on the genius track with my fellow students, I was actually looking forward to this class. I loved museums and seeing old things up close. My problems faded when I could wonder about someone else's life for a while instead of focusing on the issues of my own. I always felt sad for the mummies, though, especially the unwrapped ones, lying exposed, all burnt umber and dried-out skin, with their untrimmed hair that continued to grow even after life stopped, sprouting from noses and ears and untrimmed eyebrows. After so much effort was put into wrapping and layering for their migration to the next world, to have all of it undone seemed wrong. Whoever mummies were in life, the one thing we knew for certain about them is they wanted to be covered with bandages and sarcophagi, tucked into the center of an elaborate package, like a present to be opened on some god's birthday. Instead, here this guy lay exposed, grin frozen in place, hair matted, all the signs and symbols of the journey he never took cataloged, analyzed and on exhibition, with a label that said only where he was from, that he wore makeup, and the name of the donor of his remains to the museum. Actually, that seemed macabre. How could a person donate another person to a museum? Back up, miss. Uh, uh, sorry. Sheesh, what harm can I do? What can I see that isn't already on display to the whole world? I wrenched my attention away from the garrison mummy and scanned the room for a sign to the seminar room. Leaving the warm hues and dim light of the mummies in funerary arts exhibit, I walked down a bright corridor. Floor-to-ceiling windows gave views into a classroom with white walls and stainless steel tables, each with a pair of stools. A stand with a large illuminating magnifying glass and a stack of white cotton gloves sat neatly on each table alongside a microscope. The pristine environment seemed more like a hospital than a classroom. I managed to forget for a moment that this was school and that school was not my strong suit. I stepped into the room and saw the familiar faces of some of the GYSP students and our professor, Dr. Kaleo. Let us commence. Promptness will be important for your success in this class and in life. Dr. Kaleo was a middle-aged white woman with hair the color of champagne swept up and pinned back in a chignon. She wore tasteful makeup that accentuated her large blue eyes. She had the same fresh scent tinged with acridity I had noticed in the common room during orientation. Some floral perfume rose in lilacs, laid over a base of decaying meat. I opened my mouth just slightly and shifted my focus back to her appearance. Her manicured nails, painted pale pink, quickly disappeared as she stretched white cotton gloves over her long, graceful hands. Choose a seat. Two to a table. Now. I plopped down at the table closest to me and was happy to find Delani there. Hi, it's Kaya. I remember. Platypus, mint chocolate chip. I'm Delani. Have some gloves. 
A man wearing a lab coat appeared from a room at the rear of the classroom. With gloved hands, he wheeled a stainless steel trolley holding small objects over to the teacher and stood next to her, facing us. My name is Dr. Kaleo, and it is my job to introduce you to the world of ancient artifacts and archaeology. You are about to see for yourselves how a small token can hold volumes of information, how one small object can open an entire world to you. She picked up one of the items off the tray and placed it in her open palm. It was hard to see any of the detail from our table three rows back. It looked like a lumpy pink cylinder, not an ancient treasure. Must be starting us on the beginner's tray. This small object is one of thousands from the ancient world. Museums all over the world hold drawers full of these items. Definitely the beginner's tray. Made of fine but not precious stones, these votives have been found in ancient burial and worship sites in locations as diverse as what is now Russia, China, Iraq, Iran, and parts of Europe. As you will see in a moment, each stone has been carved to resemble an animal. Some are crudely fashioned, lines scratched into the surface to suggest features. Others are exquisite. My assistant will bring you each a specimen to examine. For now, look, but do not touch. Allow him to place yours on the table in front of you. I repeat, use your eyes, not your hands. Scholars are not sure of the purpose of these votives. The ancients may have believed they warded off evil spirits or brought good fortune. Perhaps they were offerings to be left at the altars of gods or goddesses. It would be much more convenient for a devotee to bring a small stone pig on pilgrimage to a holy site as a symbolic offering than to drag the real thing grunting and squealing. Look, each of you, at your votive. What do you see? What animal does yours represent? Make a note of its color, texture, and whether you see any marks or lines on it. Pig, definitely. Some kind of pink stone. Uniform in color and smooth texture, except where it's carved and the stone looks lighter and matte. Its rectangular body has shallow-cut grooves that suggest four legs folded up underneath as if the pig is lying down, resting on its stomach. One end comes up to a short little snout. Two pinhole eyes are carved into its face, and small triangular ears were outlined by engraved lines. Cute. Petrichor. The scent that hangs in the air just before rain falls, sizzling onto hot rocks. Dr. Kaleo stood with her back to us, hands on her hips. Now, carefully pick up your votive and look again. What do you notice now? I picked up the pig and placed it on the palm of my left hand. Pay close attention to your votive. My pig started to glow. I curled my hands around it and looked up. Had anyone noticed? I glanced around quickly. No one was staring at me. Everyone seemed attentive to their own little animals. But then I noticed 
A couple other hands, too, had started to close. White gloves like tulips reverse blooming, petals closing over the stamen and life-giving pollen inside. I snapped back to my own hands. The stone had started to feel warm, heating up from within. I slapped the votive pig down on the table, relieved to see that the glowing stopped when I released it. I glanced at Delani. Her eyes were wide. She was staring at the animal she had placed back on the table. Her hands were folded in her lap, her shoulders hunched, her breath was shallow. Yours, too? Yep. I don't know. Kaya! Delani! Please remain after class. She was facing the front of the room, away from us. What did she know? How did she know? The rest of the class went by in a blur. I scrawled notes as Dr. Kaleo described the various scientific tests. Oxygen, isotrope, chronostratigraphy, x-ray, diffractometry, other graphies and matries we would subject our little stone creatures to next class meeting. At the end of class, Delani and I dutifully approached Dr. Kaleo. Already in this first class, you both show great potential. It usually takes longer to see the stirrings you witnessed today. Come to my office tomorrow, 10 a.m. Do not be late. You will find the room number on the directory out front. Yes, Professor. Thank you. What just happened? That thing with the glowing stones? No idea, but I can't wait to see what Dr. Kaleo wants to show us. Come by my room tonight before it lights out if you want. Great. Thanks. Maybe I was making a friend. As I walked back through the museum alone, I passed the garrison mummy's case again, approaching him from behind, his spine curved away from me as he lay tucked in on himself. Then I noticed a detail I had not seen on my first encounter. Two thin vertical scars, each about two inches long, rested on either side of his bony spine. Startled, I absentmindedly raised a hand over my shoulder and felt for my own. I stood there just for a moment, elbow crooked around my neck, fingers running along my scars, when I noticed the security guard looking at me. I pretended to scratch an itch. I made my feet start moving again past the mummy's case and toward the door. I glanced back and saw the security guard speaking into his walkie-talkie. I looked down again toward the mummy. I think he was smiling. Uh, time for more water. I'm parched. You? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, do you want me to get some? No, I'll go. I'll be right back. Don't leave. Okay. Let's see what else is on this thing. This is Nurse Bereith, Dream Lab. Subject, Kaya Smith, GYSP student, anamnesis experiment number three. Dream prompt, Noah. Transmission begins in five, 
four, three, two. The old man grips her arm so hard she fears his gnarled fingernails will permanently inscribe her skin with half-moon crescents thick as the rim of her drinking cup. Samya flinches but does not pull away even though she detests Noah, now more than ever since the odors of age hang about him like flies swarm the corpses of those worn out by working on the tower. He often holds on like this while he scavenges for words, as if by squeezing tightly he can wring the phrase he searches for from his toothless mouth. Noah is old, 950, one of the last of the superannuated, born before his god declared that human beings would no longer see much more than a century. Samya is superannuated too, although, thanks to Elixir, does not show her age. Samya doesn't know how much Noah sees through his cloudy eyes or how well he can hear through ears that sprout hair and earwax in equal measure. He can talk, and does so in rambling stories he has told a thousand times, now with words missing and phrases that don't follow. He smacks his lips, then produces some meaningless syllable, and his eyes well up in frustration when no one understands his non-sequiturs. Sometimes a thin crust forms at the corners of his mouth. Samya finds him disgusting. He can often be found sitting alone and polishing little animals he carves from some of the tower building stone. When he runs his hands through his tufts of thinning hair, he leaves stone dust behind. She stays near him in case she gets something useful to the Nephilim. He seems to mistake her proximity for kindness. If she forces herself to focus, Samya finds that she can put together pieces of his past, and his gleaning of what was going on in the present is uncannily accurate for someone so obviously failing. His favorite subject is the flood. She was there, of course, and her main concern as the waters rose was keeping herself alive. Noah, however, had been absorbed with paying attention to others. He simply can't appreciate that he had been spared. His memories are peppered with grief, and he still sheds tears these many years later. Mm. Mm. Not, not even when faced with tra- tra- tragedy could they treat one another with compassion. Mothers held infants to the to the up clouds to the sky sky not to live lift them uh, above the sur- surging waters but as offerings to false gods i sacrifice this child to you spare my life mother said Mothers. Samya winces. Her own children are now dead. She has outlived them. Her memories of them are bittersweet. She preferred the ones fathered by Nephilim, and although their angelic blood gave them longer lives, they had died in excruciating pain. She had considered giving them elixir to see if that would help, but there wouldn't be enough for both them and her. <laughs> 
waters choked with bloated carcasses and sewage, air full of birds hunting for a, a, a place to rest, Pl plummeting exhausted to watery exertion. Extinction? Extinction, yes. You un understand, dear Samya. You remember carrion gorging themselves to flightlessness, falling off the corpses at which they picked to drown. He holds a small carving of a horse up to his face and squints at it as if checking it for something. Why can't he just move on? Nothing of value here. And after the flood, what did you notice? Anything important? Everything was washed away, cleansed by the deluge. Even my anger at people's hatefulness could not survive the flood. I was left with only pity and sorrow, compassion. Weak emotions. Better the peerless mantra. Anger motivates, hate stimulates. The creator was faithful. The rains stopped. Land became fertile. Water spawned life. A fresh start. I thought humanity would learn kindness at last. The old man looks wistful. With his free hand, he gives Samia's arm another squeeze and looks at her directly, his eyes suddenly clear. Humanity must learn kindness. Tears begin to well and rim his eyes and they fog over again. He looks like a seer gazing into the future. Samia doesn't like it. The creator will never again cleanse the earth. Never again will we have this kind of second chance. When disaster next comes, it will arise from the down... Ground, earth. I hate this game. Earth. He looks at the rock in his hand and nods. From the earth? You mean humans will do something? Humans? No. 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 Neff. Neff. You. You. He knows. How could he not? He had known Nephilim before the flood. He had to notice now that some beings amongst us are superior, even if they cloak their more obvious traits in order to escape detection. But does he know I'm responsible for their survival? You. You can hear it, too. Hear what? How the sound has changed. The harmony is disintegrating because of the tower. We are in grave danger 
all of us, even you. He puts a hand on hers, but not to grip her. She realizes it is a gesture of pity. Even you. But don't worry, dear Samya. This will save us. That little stone horse? The one you've been carving? <laughs> you old fool! You worthless old merely! He is clearly demented, and she will no longer waste her time listening to his nonsense. She storms away while Noah sets down the horse and picks up a fresh piece of rock, examining it to decide what animal he will carve next. Another outstanding transmission. Sending results to Dr. Grigori will suggest moving ahead with implantation for continued transmission. What? Oh, I guess I did fall asleep. How did I do? Very well, Kaya. Can I make you some breakfast? The Noah? Could it possibly be? You didn't tell them. Tell who what? To hold me, file some charges so they'll keep me for a while. They said time's running out. What am I going to do? I can't leave here unless you help me. I'm, I'm not going to lie for you. You'll just have to keep talking and hope you persuade me. Okay, okay. Have some water. It's warm in here. Aren't you warm? I'm fine. Please, tell me what happened when you went to the library with Josh. Okay. I went to meet Josh at the library. I was looking forward to it. Two things I enjoy. The smell of old books and, at the time being with Josh. At the time? Did that change? Let's just say, for now, it became complicated. So I met Josh in front of the main library. Broccoli and ice cream. What a random combination. Sounds disgusting. What are you talking about? Read the plaque. It's why Mrs. Widener left this library and her legacy for Harvard students. In memory of Harry Elkins Widener, a graduate of this university born January 3rd, 1885, died at sea April 15, 1912, upon the foundering of the steamship Titanic. That's really sad. I hoped Josh couldn't see me shiver at the mention of drowning. Water is my number one phobia. I've had nightmares about it as long as I can remember. In my dreams, I'm drowning or someone else's, and there's nothing I can do to save them. Harry graduated from here and went to Europe for the summer. He was on his way home when the ship went down. His mom wanted to do something in his memory. She left enough money so that broccoli and ice cream would be served every day at the student cafeterias in perpetuity. The Div School has great mint chocolate chip. Not so fast. Have you passed your test? The ice cream comes with strings attached? Is someone monitoring my broccoli intake? Your swim test. 
swim test? Yeah. You really don't know about the swim test? No. Mrs. Widener left the broccoli and ice cream money and the requirement that every student pass a swim test. Not that swimming would have saved her son. You can be the smartest student here. Win a Nobel Prize for a class project. Write the great American novel. But if you can't swim 100 yards, no diploma. I started to get the pre-faint feeling I sometimes get when I think about being in water, where the edges of my vision get cloudy and my hearing gets muffled. I bent over, my hands on my thighs. Are you all right? I am fine. I can breathe. I will not drown. I am fine. I can breathe. I will not drown. Kaya, are you okay? He put his hand on my back, lightly, but I could feel it rest on my scars. I jolted out of my faint, and his hand snapped back to his side. I'm fine. Fine. Just a little dizzy. You were leaving me. You did not look fine. Must have been something I ate. Or the disgusting thought of broccoli with ice cream. Crumb, one more reason I don't belong here. If you say so. I say so. Let's go in. How on earth was I going to pass a swim test if I couldn't even think about it without passing out? I looked back at Josh, who gave me a really sweet smile. I breathed deeply, and the caramel smell of leather-bound books and Josh's grin made me feel hopeful. I thought I might as well make the most of today, especially if I would get kicked out or drowned out soon. I remembered the makeup-wearing mummy whose scars matched mine, and a research topic came to me. So, where can I find out more about the Gerasene? Whatever that is. Most of the reference to Gerasene I could find were to stories in the Bible, where Jesus casts demons out of a man from a place called Gerasa. Jesus commands the demons to leave the man, but they beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs, which he does, and the whole herd runs off the side of a cliff and drowns. The man wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus doesn't let him and instead tells him to go home and tell others what Jesus did for him. I wondered what the chances were that the garrison mummy in the museum and the man in the story were one and the same. The mummy came from the right time, the first century. How many notable garrisons could there be? Was it just a coincidence that my day so far had included a glowing pig votive and a mummy with the same scars as me who came from a place remembered for a mass suicide of pigs? I thought of the pigs hurling themselves over the cliff and pictured one lone pig running the other direction. That night, I hung out with Delani in her room. We drank tea, sitting next to each other on her bed. I was happy to be in her company. So, how do you know so much about platypuses? Or, um, platypodes? 
Platypuses works too. Just don't say platypie. It sounds right, but it's not. Although it's easy to see why someone would make that mistake. Since I was little, I've just loved animals. Felt close to them. All kinds. I love learning about them. It feels like a calling to me, you know, like what I'm supposed to be doing. I felt a stab of longing, maybe envy, at her sense of having a purpose. Do you want to be a vet? Maybe. I'm not sure I want to do operations or anything medical. I definitely couldn't euthanize an animal, even though sometimes it's the best thing to do, depending on the circumstances. So probably not a vet, although I want to do something to help animals, the, the ones in trouble for sure. Can I show you something? Sure. I'm keeping track of things going on in the world. These are reports of things that have happened within the past two years. These are all news stories. Whoa. This one says, Frogs close Greek highway. On an otherwise normal sunny afternoon outside of Athens, Greece, an army of about 100,000 frogs emerged from a field and started across a busy thoroughfare. Stunned drivers, repelled by the gross and dangerous reality of driving over the mashed carcasses of the amphibians, skidded to a stop causing a massive pileup of vehicles that stretched for eight miles. It took 30 minutes for the surviving frogs to cross the highway and 10 hours for all the accidents to be cleared. Wow. That's what a group of frogs is called, an army. A group of toads is a knot. Like that's the important takeaway from the story? 100,000 frogs out of nowhere? All needing to cross the road just then? That seems odd. Well, look at this one. Great white sharks heading north in huge numbers. They're showing up much farther north than normal. A group of sharks is called a shiver. Seems appropriate. Is this some kind of global warming thing? Maybe. Sometimes humans create disturbances. Global warming or a subdivision gets built in the middle of a cougar migration route and suddenly big cats are loitering in supermarket parking lots. But sometimes there's no obvious explanation. Huh. Asian carp breach electric fences in the Great Lakes. Spangled perch fall from the sky over a remote town in Australia? Fish fall from the sky more often than you might think. <laughs> Look at this one. Dog shoots owner in the bottom. A dog stepped on a loaded shotgun his owner had left lying on the seat of the fishing boat they were in. The man survived the incident. How would you like to be him in the emergency room? <laughs> Embarrassing. Uh, no, really, it was my dog. Now take the bullet out, please. I'm sure it was humiliating for the man, but think about the dog. The dog must have felt very bad about it. Oh, sure. The dog was thinking, next time I'll just bark to get his attention. No, I'm serious. This may sound crazy, but I know dogs can feel a tremendous sense of guilt, especially over accidents they cause. That doesn't sound crazy. I'm sure dogs have a rich emotional life. Oh, good. Usually when I say I know what dogs are feeling, people think I'm a little nuts. My father does anyway. I don't tell many people, but I'm glad I can trust you. Wait, 
I mean, thank you. You know what dogs are thinking? Dogs, cats, gerbils, hamsters, you name it. Not all of them, of course. A walk in the woods, if I could understand all the birds, for instance, would be chaos. A trip to the zoo, torture. But some of them. I believe you. I've always felt an affinity for animals, like I said. But over time, I realized I could actually sense their thoughts. It was kind of disturbing at first. I thought I was hallucinating or making it up, of course. I would love to know what animals are thinking. I knew exactly what she meant about having an odd ability, although I didn't blurt out that my own weirdness involves smelling pastrami from 100 paces or the dander that still lingered on Delani even though she was hundreds of miles away from her family pet. It's not like I have direct communication with them. I can't suddenly speak their language or hear my dog barking and translate it to, I can't take any more of this terrible dry dog food or... Don't worry, I'll protect you from the UPS delivery person or anything. It's more like something comes on a wavelength, a sensitivity to something in their eyes or the sounds they make. That gives me a sense of what she's thinking. Did you test it? I mean, is there some way to prove you're not making it up? I'm not saying you are making it up, but there must be a way if it's real, right? Well, the clearest examples are when I've encountered an animal with something wrong especially when it's not something visible or obvious, like a bird with a broken wing would be. More like when the cat seems fine, but I know that the cat can tell an earthquake is coming and wants me to know too. I know a dog who can detect diseases in people, but has no way of communicating it other than a low-frequency whine. I can hear it, and I understand it. So far, he detected early-stage breast cancer in his owner, and an operable congenital heart disease in the little boy who lives next door. The people were so grateful when I told them they might want to have these things checked out, and they turned out to be true. But it's not me. I'm just hearing what the dog's telling me. Weird, I know. Uh, Maybe not so weird. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe. But all these stories make me concerned, especially the ones about large groups of animals being in strange places, Or like they're trying to get somewhere they don't belong or haven't been before. Something's out of whack. Boundaries are getting crossed or lines are becoming blurred. I wish I knew what exactly is wrong so I could do something about it. I'm so glad I can tell you about it. When I tried to explain it to my father, especially the part about being able to communicate with animals, he got really alarmed. He thought something is seriously wrong with me. He was actually ready to send me somewhere for psychological help. I came into the kitchen one morning and he had all the brochures fanned out on the table. A serene treatment center for girls in Switzerland, nestled in snowy mountains. A sleek, hyper-clean steel and glass institute in France. Racquetball courts and fencing for recreation. A gray gabled estate in Scotland specializing in therapeutic caber tossing. At least that one offered falconry, and I could still communicate with the birds. He thought sending me off to a place with girls who had suffered severe head trauma would be the best option. When the invitation came to join the GYSP, I leapt at the chance, even though I really miss my animals. My aunt said if I couldn't find anything to do this summer, she would enter me in beauty pageants. She said she could get me most improved. (laughs) I know, funny, huh? Someone as plain as me? Oh, not because you couldn't win. 
Everyone knows most of that stuff is faked anyway. <laughs> most of that stuff? What do you think it would take in my case? 80% fakery? No, no. I just think it's funny that you're a beauty pageant refugee, and I'm an insane asylum refugee. <laughs> I wanted to tell her about my parents and my suspicions about their death, about the angel wing symbol by their car that matched the one on the GYSP invitation, but didn't dare... In case she thought I sounded paranoid and told me she knew a good asylum in Switzerland where I'd fit right in. Instead, I asked her if she'd noticed the garrison mummy in the museum. And if she knew the story about the demons and the pigs, it sounded right up her alley. I hated that story the first time I heard it. All those pigs drowning. But over time, I've come to think the pigs knew something had to be done to get those demons in the water. Think about it. Angels, demons, you never hear about them being in water. Their realms seem to be heaven, air, or land. I don't think they can survive underwater. I hate water. I'm terrified of it. I bet pigs aren't fond of it either, but they found a way to destroy a legion of demons. I admire them. If the story is true. Well, sure. Too bad the mummy can't talk. I bet he could tell us. <sighs> Time to go. See you tomorrow for ethics class. I fell asleep with my mind a-swirl, wondering what Jesus had said to release the demons, what the pigs would say to Delani, and how the garrison mummy got his scars. Wait a second. Before I tell you about ethics class, I want you to hear another Dream Lab transmission. You should know the guy in this one. I should know the guy in your dream? Yeah, it's Noah. Oh, I'm sorry, Kaya. When you went out, I listened to another file on your flash drive. Couldn't resist, huh? Yeah, I, I should have told you. It's okay. You just saved us some time. But here's another one with Noah. Noah held the little loaf-shaped stone close to his face. His vision had dimmed, so he looked for a long time at each stone before he began carving, sometimes asking the stone what animal it held within it. Noah often spoke aloud to himself, no longer caring what others thought, doubting anyone even noticed. He considered it an advantage of his age to be largely invisible to those around him. They assumed he was hard of hearing, so they didn't bother to shield their speech in his presence. It was, as his great-grandfather Enoch had once told him, both a gift and a sadness to be an elder. One can observe unobserved, but it is a particular loneliness to have no one with whom to wonder at the observations. That's why he welcomed Samia's company, even though he knew she was in league with the Nephilim, and he suspected from the way they favored her that 
she had something to do with their survival after the flood. No matter. He had his great-grandfather Enoch's word that the Watchers couldn't be rescued from their prison. The world was safe from their ultimate catastrophe, no matter what schemes the Nephilim devised. Noah's job now was only to do what he thought could help after the coming dispersion. What do you want to become, Little Stone? What do you want to release? He held the stone up to his ear and listened, and then chuckled to himself. His hearing was still quite good for someone his age. He had been trying to pay attention to the sounds around him because he was certain that they held the key to what would happen soon, the Creator's unfolding plan and the part that he might play in it. He thought back to the flood. Once the rain stopped, there were the quiet schlumps and gurgles of decomposing bodies and swollen stumps as they finally slipped beneath the surface of the waters. Then, a hush so encompassing it was a presence that buoyed the ark as much as the waters did. The silence lasted days. He lost track of how long the quiet hung around them, but he remembered the advent of a sound. He recognized it instantly. The crystal clear hum of the great celestial hymn, the music of the spheres. Noah had heard it as a boy, although his great-grandfather told him it had dimmed by then. It was the sound of pure joy, harmony. To hear it and feel it reverberate through the sky above was wonderful, peaceful, and invigorating. Noah remembered the sound as transcendent and reachable, yet it resonated within you as well, as if it needed you as its carrier, as if it would be diminished if it could not resound through your being. The sound rang out above the waters, over the floating sanctuary, and filled those within with hope. When had the harmonic sound started to dim again? He hadn't noticed at the time. Perhaps he had been too busy tending to daily life. Not until the tower began to rise into the sky did Noah notice the change in the sound. It was becoming faint. But it wasn't just the volume. It was the sound itself. It had become hesitant, mournful, as if tuning its own lament, preparing the dirge for its own funeral. The higher the tower went, the more desolate the song became. He was sure the tower was the cause. One of the few who loathed the tower, he saw it as a sign of disobedience, rather than the bringer of fame the egregore promised. After the flood, the Creator told people to multiply and fill the earth, a command that was also a blessing, 
an affirmation that the world was good again, all of it. The creator had given it to people to explore and inhabit. We should have spread out over the earth, not gather all in one place where resources would be depleted and skirmishes over property would break out. All but a few stayed here on the plains of Shinar, preferring the security of the familiar to exploration of the unknown. We began to grow discontented, to scheme and wheedle and grow suspicious of one another. That's when the Egregor family announced their plan. Together, we would build a tower. The tower, the height of which had never before been seen. Even now, still unfinished, a three days walk does not obscure it from view. Noah acknowledged the brilliance of the plan. It brought people together. It put an end to bickering between neighbors and squabbling in the marketplace for the last of the skinny chickens and underripe melons. Everyone was united in a common task, creating something, the egregore assured worth sacrificing for. Of course, not everyone would be involved in the hewing of stones or setting them into place, but a construction project of this magnitude meant that if one weren't hauling or lifting, truing or squaring, one's labor was necessary to feed those who were. People were needed to keep fires and ovens roaring, to tend to the tired or aid the wounded when accidents inevitably happened. Only Noah and some others who had grown too feeble to be deemed useful were excused from the working in some fashion on this project. Ha! The price we've paid. A passerby glanced at him, then threw him a coin and hurried along. Noah shook his head. If only people would see what was going on right in front of them. People valued only according to what they could do for the tower. Builders were more prized than boulder bringers. Stonemasons more valuable than mortar mixers. Supervisors more important than measurers. Anyone working directly on the tower more esteemed than those who supported laborers, so farmers, herders, and cooks less laudable than sawyers, carvers, and scaffold builders. Those bearing and teaching children were valuable only insofar as they were producing future workers for the tower. Such a great number of people were needed to transport stone from quarries and bricks from fire pits that the largest group of workers was the haulers. Although their work was crucial, the Egregor regarded them as drones, less important to them than animals. The Egregor wanted the tower built as quickly as possible, so haulers were worked to exhaustion. As they died from exhaustion and accidents, they were thrown into unmarked pits and replaced with new haulers. The egregore allowed 
then cajoled, then forced younger and weaker haulers to work. The lowest of all in the tower hierarchy of dominance were those who filled the burial pits with the dead haulers. The egregore called them refuse removers. The naming of people according to their occupations, their usefulness to the tower rather than some other attribute or honorific of the divine, was a Nephil innovation. Noah was bringer of rest by name. In tower terms, he was useless. Were he not known as the grandfather of all the living, he was certain he would be regarded only as a consumer of food that could be fuel for a worker. Already some of his elderly neighbors had disappeared, and a young man born with a palsied limb had died unexpectedly. The egregore needed replacements, more laborers of all sorts. What frightened Noah most were rumors he heard whispered in the marketplace that the egregore were impregnating women, trying to increase the population, not by encouraging love to flourish and families to grow, but by using women as breeders. Some families were approached to allow their daughters to serve the tower by going to a plantation a two days' walk from Shinar. They were told their daughters would be trained to work with children. Their training would be so intensive they must be removed from the community to a place where they could devote all their energies to the program. But some of the young women had escaped and told of being made to produce not teach children. Some people did not believe them. Others said they should consider it an honor if that's what the egregore deemed necessary. How quickly we have been swept up in the schemes of the Nephilim. Surely the Creator has a plan. I hope you will be of some help. Noah said to the rock from which he was now certain he would release a rather handsome little pig. So you did learn some things in the GYSP. I did, but none of it was what I expected. Votive stones that glowed, Mummies with scars like mine, that I was going to have to pass a swim test, which was impossible. Then there was ethics class. Was ethics class a struggle for you? I I mean, (laughs) I'm here because you want to kill somebody. I didn't start out this way. In fact, Part of what I was mulling over as I was standing outside Dr. Gregory's office was the thought he might be proud of me for turning out like this after such a short time in his program. In one short summer, I had learned to lie, steal, hate, now even kill. Well, imagine killing. I didn't pull it off yet, as you know. 
I wondered if he would congratulate himself for making me so much after his own image. Would his last thought be my darling progeny, my own creation? So, yeah, ethics class was a struggle because it gave me my first real glimpse into the world as Dr. Gregory sees it, a world really different from what normal people see around them. What exactly are we supposed to be learning here? Who is that again? Kieran, Mumbai, Rum Raisin, Physics, Purple, Elephant. As well as being a physics whiz, he's an award-winning painter. Among other achievements, he figured out a way to duplicate the oil painting technique Leonardo da Vinci used in his portraits to make people's skin look so real. But Kieran's primary goal in life is to save the world from environmental disaster. During his junior year, he developed a way to make solar panels more efficient and cheaper to produce. No wonder he's against what he calls the excesses of the GYSP program. No recycling, no renewable energy sources, immoderate use of paper products. An endangered species of fish was on the cafeteria menu last night. I didn't come here to learn about composting. The whole point of ethics is how we should live. There is a limit to everything. Someday important resources will run out if we don't pay attention. And it's poor people who pay the price first. Living among our refuse, bearing the brunt of the consequences of deforestation, drought, and rising sea levels. Dr. Eater was our ethics professor. Call me Azar, he said at the beginning of our class. I was confused for a moment until I realized he was inviting us to call him by his first name. I bristled. Dr. Eater was fine with me, especially since he had that cheesy, don't think of me as your professor, think of me as your friend vibe going. He wore his long hair pulled back in a thick ponytail, and his broad shoulders and muscular build made him look like a Hollister catalog model. A perfectly even growth of stubble adorned his square jaw and dimpled chin. Thick lashes framed his large, dark eyes. His ponytail holder was ornamented with chunky, multicolored beads and two small white feathers. It was hard to look at him and not wish he were a friend instead of someone who held the power of grades and promotion over our heads. But he, too, emitted the now-familiar yet still-puzzling combination of pleasant and putrid scents, fresh-cut meadow flowers, and foul fish. He was wearing a patchouli-based cologne, but it didn't quite do the trick of masking his underlying stink. What if you are mistaken, Kieran, about the notion that something running out is a bad thing? Dinosaurs were eliminated, for instance. But human life and dinosaur life could not be sustained simultaneously for the long term. What you say is correct. The poor are affected when there is a global shift. But you can see that the poor are quite resilient by the fact that the poor survive. As a class of people, the poor survive. Individual poor people often do not. Yes, as a group, the poor continue to exist. No one has ever succeeded in eradicating them all. Uh, what? Well, should we not learn from their fortitude, their creativity, 
Rather than pity the poor, should we not learn from them, emulate them in some way? Not by adopting their circumstances, of course. I wasn't saying we should treat them with pity. I was saying that we shouldn't do things that affect poor people negatively, especially when they don't even get a say in it. Like handbags. This from the gorgeous student named Xanthi as she ran her hand through her mane of blonde hair. There are cooperatives in Ghana where poor women are making stunning handbags from the plastic grocery bags that wash up on beaches. Handbags? Cooperatives? Yes. I believe Azar is saying that if these women weren't motivated by their poverty, they would be denied the opportunity to contribute to the world and the world's economy. And the resources just wash ashore for them. A gift. An example of recycling, perhaps, and something good resulting from something bad. But shouldn't we look at what caused the bad situation in the first place? You have raised an interesting subject, Kieran. You have heard of creation myths, stories of the origin of the world. Every culture has one, sometimes more than one. There are myths for the origins of evil as well. It's important to study them and understand them, what they're saying and not saying about the reality of good and evil in the world. So for the next class meeting, let's read First Enoch chapters 1 through 16 found in your reading packet. This is an ancient story, about 2,300 years old. However, we shall find that it still has contemporary relevance. Contemporary relevance. It was a gross understatement, but our ethics professor was, in this matter at least, being brutally honest. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whipfenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whipfenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music for the podcast was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 3 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Patrick Gillingham as Security Guard, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Jenny Ovenstone-Smith as Dr. Kaleo, Phyllis Everett as Nurse Bereath, Bill Finn as Narrator, Peter Renner as Noah, Kimber Lee Nussbaum as Samya, David Merrill as Josh, Pan Conrad as Narrator, Henry Mitchell Bibelheimer as Kieran, Sarah Richter as Aranka, Kadri Holmes as Dr. Eater, and Lily Kerr-Young as Xanthi. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and tell a friend. We'll be back in two weeks with Episode 4.